What's up, Growth Nation? Welcome back to Scale or Die, the show where we uncover proven growth strategies from CEOs and growth experts behind some of the world's fastest growing startups. I'm your host, Dave Rogemoser, and today I've got Bryn Jones, the co-founder and CEO at PartnerStack, formerly GrowSumo. It's a company that we use that is an online platform to basically give you everything that you need to build your own partner program, turn your customers and fans into your own kind of distributed sales force is the way I look at it. So we've been using them for a while now, very cool product, and I'm excited to talk to Bryn about kind of how they've grown that to something that's so cool. So Bryn, welcome to the show, man. Awesome, Dave. Thanks for having me on here. That's definitely something I've been looking forward to. Yeah, this will be fun. So I want to dive into PartnerStack here. And where are you guys at you know, today in terms of some of the revenue numbers that you track or customers or employee numbers? Just where are you guys at right now? Yeah, so we're, we're about 30 people right now. Um, we've tripled the team in the last 12 months. Um, we've grown revenue close to 400%. Um, you know, like on a on a on a steady track to go through and um, and to continue scaling up this year, uh, we expect we'll probably double the team size by end of year. So we'll be somewhere in the range of about fifty five or so. So life is good and growing can sometimes hurt, is what I'll go through it and say. Um, but um, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. Very cool. So you guys have been doing this about four years now, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess like going back to where we started is two thousand fifteen. My co founders and I. Um, we founded another company, and it was like Slack uh, for nonprofits. And the one recommendation I always tell people is never build Slack for nonprofits. It's not a business that you want to be in. Should you build? Um, should you build anything for nonprofits, or is it the nonprofit part that's the hard part? Uh, you know what? I think it was. Yeah, I, I think building for nonprofits is tough. Some people have done a really good job at it. It's not what I can go through and do. <laughs> is what we went through and learned. Um, and so, yeah, it, it started with that. Our was four of us. We started like, you know, really working hard on a problem when we were in graduate school and, um, you know, learned very quickly that that was not the business that we wanted to go through to be in. Um, uh, and partner stack actually evolved out of that. Um, our partner channel was actually like what I like to say, the only thing that was working inside oh. of our business. Um, and, and that's how we got started with partner stack back in two, 2015. And you guys did YC. We did YC. We were winter 2018, so right at a year ago. Uh, did you guys take Partner Stack through YC, or was that the nonprofit Slack deal? Yeah, no. So we applied to YC twice before with the nonprofit Slack deal, and definitely didn't get in. Um, uh, we got in with Partner Stack. Okay. Uh, it was like I guess February 2015 was when we first started working on it, just as an idea. We went and did a whole bunch of customer discovery made an application into YC, and we got in really as an idea. So it was very fresh when, when we first got in there. Did you have no customers when you got into YC? No customers. We didn't even have a functioning platform. So we got into YC, we actually put a landing page together, and we reached out to you know, 40 SaaS companies. And then 20 of those 40 SaaS companies signed up to our platform within two weeks. And that's the only thing that worked by the time we had our first meeting with uh, Aaron Harris, Kevin Hale, and Kat. Gotcha. Um, and so there's, it was an uphill battle after that, for sure. So what did you think of YC? Like, what was your experience looking back on it? I mean, I think that YC's, I mean, their model is incredible, right? Like, they put a model together where they bring investors all in one place, and it becomes, like, very easy to raise financing in a very short period of time. Um, the things they teach you inside of there, like setting goals um, and trying to go through and hit targets, 
um, are things that we still use today. It's how we actually go through and train all of our managers that come on board. Um, so it really gave us like the playbook uh, to go through and scale up the business. And like, what, what do you um, mean by that? What's an example of the goal setting that you're teaching your managers that you got from YC? Yeah, so I mean, I think that like, you know, the, you know, setting a goal for where you want to be end of year, then working back from that and like how to have, like everyone knows how to do that, but like how to actually have conversations that keep you accountable um, and how like, you know, feedback is really, really important. Um, and I think that that like part of YC where you're doing, you know, group office hours every two weeks and, you know, you get to have the hard conversations in front of a team of like in front of eight other groups um, and you get to see the hard conversations that they're having to have shows that like everything's broken always. And so there's no point of, you know, like, 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 you know, bullshitting it. Like you yeah. just be honest with what's there. And um, I, I think that that's like core to, core to our business and, and core, to, core to who we are. And the YC partners love hard conversations. I mean, it is yeah. like, I always feel like YC talking to somebody is like jumping into an icy river. It's like, this is going to be tough. And I'm going to like be a little bit upset at the end of this, but it's always, you know, so good. And, and I've, that was a shock for me, I think, going into YC. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's like, I remember our first conversation, first meeting, first conversation, we sat right next to Kevin Hale and he turned to us and I knew that we were going to get picked on to go through and like explain to our business. And he's like, listen, this is a safe space. Like, tell us everything that's wrong. Um, and like, we had no idea what we're doing, right? Like first time founders, we'd done a company before really had gone nowhere. And I, I, I turned to him and I was like, you know, the truth is like our platform's completely broken. It doesn't work. And our customers are going through and complaining. And I remember just getting like, just, it was like walking over hot coals, um, like the look on his face. Um, and so, uh, thankfully that was, a, I don't think it was the last time we saw that look. Um, but, um, you know, we got, we got used to it and, and learned, you know, the hard way that this is how you have to go through and grow stuff. Yeah. I remember we got our, our welcome call from Dalton and we were so excited and he's like, you know, so pumped to have you guys. And like the next sentence was, honestly, your churn is atrocious. It's going to kill your whole business. And like, you guys have to fix that now. And I was, <laughs> it was just like one sentence of like, congratulation that it's like the hard truth from here on out. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, but it's good. I mean, it's like we knew that was true, and it was kind of the you know, the emperor's has no clothes type of moment. And it's just great. Thanks for for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. So it was an awesome experience, and I think you know the network after the fact, like you know, it, it's and anybody that's gone through it, you know, there's always things that can be done, you know, better. Uh, but I think the core thing that YC does, and the thing that they do so well, is like they just focus on what they're good at, um, and then kind of like add to it, and are constantly experimenting and you know, taking those same types of things and taking that application, putting it into our business, uh, as well as, you know, the now thousands of companies that have gone through it, you yeah. know, it's been only beneficial. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, okay, so what kind of companies get the most value from you guys? Like, who are you trying to work with and what are you really setting up with these companies? Yeah, so we work with, you know, B2B SaaS companies. Um, you know, typically, like, it doesn't really matter the, the size of their ACV. It can be low, it can be high. It works the same way. Um, what matters more is, you know, the appropriate time of trying to start a partnership channel, right? Like early days, we found early stage companies would come to us and they would say, hey, we want to build a partner channel. But if you don't understand the unit economics of your business, you're not ready to turn on multiple marketing channels. If you don't understand how to go through and sell your platform, you're not ready to go through and enable other people to sell your platform. And so the companies that typically work really well for us have probably, you know, on the low end, 
hit, you know, a million to $2 million ARR. Um, and like our sweet spot are, are companies that um, are between, you know, like 100 and 200 people. And um, like that, that works really, really well. Those mid-market uh, companies, typically at that point, there's a lot of partners uh, um, that are reaching out to them and there's different types of partners reaching out to them. Um, but we've seen it work early. We've seen it work late. At the end of the day, the problems like exist right across everything, um, wow. right across the spectrum. But it's, you know, do you have a real business? Is that business repeatable? And until then, like, there's no point in trying to go through it and, and start a partner program. So these partner programs, basically, they're just opening up and saying, we'll give you a percentage generally of, you know, all the sales that we make if you go and promote through our own funnels and all that kind of thing. Is that essentially how it works for all your customers? Yeah, so I mean, partner programs can work in three ways. Um, there's uh, the marketing partners, uh, there's a referral partner, and then there's a reseller. Um, each of those partner types um, have traditionally been like segmented into, into multiple groups. Uh, we define partner channel or as channel as, as that whole, as, as those three uh, main drivers. And that's exactly what it is. Like if you're opening a partner channel, you're effectively putting a sign on your business that says, we're open to doing business with third party members. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to work with those third parties to you know, do everything you can to enable them. So if it's a reseller, they probably want sales and marketing documentation, right? If it's an affiliate, they probably want like ad banners and rules and commissions. Um, so whatever you can do, the same way as you go through and support a sales or marketing team member and like the process of onboarding them to be successful is what you want to do with your partners as well. Interesting. So I got my start about five years ago in like the internet marketing space. And in the internet marketing space, there is kind of this seedy underbelly that is affiliate marketing. And it's people yeah. kind of get on, you know, they're, they're usually, you know, working from home, trying to start the business for the first time. And they're like, I don't have a product. So I'm going to go like the JV Zoo and I'm going to sling some of these products I don't know anything about. And it's just like not the most attractive or transparent world. And yet, I think you guys have, have kind of come into that space. I'm curious how much you feel like you're a part of that space and offered a really great product and a really great company. And you're not like attached into that world in my mind. So I'm curious, like, how have you guys navigated that? And do you, like, has that been your experience or is that just my experience of working in internet marketing before the SaaS? Oh, yeah, I know. Like affiliate marketing, like, in it, like all of that stuff is where the industry's been for a long time, right? Affiliate is really like the lowest rung of partnerships. And why is uh, it that? Could, I, it just has, you know, I think that there's a lot of negative connotations with it. Like affiliate works for products that, you know, you wouldn't talk around the dinner table about with your parents. Totally. Um, and, 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 and that's where I think that that's why it's got such a bad rep. Um, but at the end of the day, like affiliate marketing is actually a tremendous growth tool for a lot of B2B SaaS companies. Um, and, and more and more now where, I mean, there's a rise in total number of solutions that are out of the market and, you know, your sales reps, your marketing team is going to like go through it and tell the truth, but you actually want to be able to turn to whether it's, you know, like somebody on YouTube or somebody that can like run advertisements on their own. You want to be able to turn to them and let them speak that story when you're ready. Um, our view on it is we don't enable affiliates. We enable distribution channels. Um, and so a distribution channel is very different than somebody that's just running ads for you or someone that's, um, you know, doing like YouTube reviews, a distribution channel is a cost effective way to go through and acquire customers. Um, and technology companies have traditionally been very bad at distribution. The reason being is it's very easy to go direct to consumer. Um, you know, it's easy to go out and target early adopters, but the reality is the majority of the market, 
actually sits in those late adopters, late majority, and those are generally people that you can't reach or are cost prohibitive, excuse me, cost prohibitive to reach. So you're better to go through a third party um, to go through and reach them. What's been like a big success that you guys have had? A company that's used you guys, like what does a really great partner program look like? How well can it work? What kind of numbers you know, are companies seeing? Just for people that are out there that are thinking, maybe we should start to tack this on to our business. So I'll, I'll give you two examples, one at an early stage and then one at a late stage. Um, I, I won't use the specific company name, but I'll tell you how many people are inside of it. So there's um, an early stage company. Uh, when they came to us, they were five people. Um, and the fifth person had just joined and was working part-time. And um, he said, I want to make a big bet on, 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 on the partner channel. And their ACV is about $120 a year. So not, not huge, but that's about what their ACV is. He came on board, and we're actually responsible for driving now 80% of their growth. Mm. They're a totally bootstrap company. Um, they're doing you know, like well over $2 million ARR at this point in time, and we're the ones that drove 80% of that growth. And it was all because that you know, person that came on, worked like early days with them, um, and is now actually their, their VP of marketing, um, he took a bet on and, and, and saw an opportunity that's there. And it seems, the like, stage, it seems like sorry. a bootstrap company would find this model really attractive. A lot of the bootstrap companies I know, even those that are doing really well, they're using this because they, it's a little bit better for cash because you don't have to pay out the money typically until after the sale's already been made, you know, 30 or 60 days or whatever. Is that something you guys see is that it tends to be more bootstrap companies getting really excited about this early on? Yeah, early days, it's bootstrap companies because they don't have the cash. They don't have the cash to go through and buy ads. Like, they're not going through and doing that. Mm -hmm. But more and more, we're actually seeing later stage companies. Um, and so, you know, like the average SaaS company, 30% of their revenue should be done through channel. Um, and so, if you're not, if you don't have a channel program, if you don't have a partner program today, you're just giving up on potentially 30% of your revenue. Um, and it will be impactful at some point in time. You can look at big companies like HubSpot, 40% of their new revenue comes through channel. Um, Shopify is closer to 30% at this point in time. And it's ultimately the thing that lets you go through and scale up. So we worked with early stage companies of you know, four people that scaled to 12. And now we're working with companies as big as Intuit. Um, um, with the reason being that this is an incredibly hard beast to go through and handle. And so you know, we have customers coming to us that have overpaid uh, their channel partners um, that have massive holes uh, in in their programs, um, and you know, at the end of the day, we just give a framework where we can turn channel and turn partnerships into a science um, because today it operates very much so like an art. Interesting. And what percentage do you see most good SaaS companies giving up to their partners in order to go make the sales? Yeah. So on the low end, at twenty percent. On the high end. Um, People go upwards of 40%. Uh, those are typically for resellers that unload not only the acquisition costs, but the support costs tied to it. So we have um, like enterprise customers on our platform, and the LTV of their customers that they bring on board that come through uh, channel partners is uh, 250% greater than um, the LTV of customers they actually onboard. And it's because the channel partner is there hand-holding, doing all the training, mm -hmm. Um, and is there just to go through and support the account. And um, yeah, so, so you know, we see upwards of 40% um, and as, as low as 20. Anything that's under 20 you know, is, is questionable whether you're actually going to be able to recruit the right people. Um, you certainly have to incentivize people the right way. But yeah, that's what we're seeing right now. 
Yeah, when we first launched Proof two years ago, we started at a 40% referral fee because we wanted to go kind of take the market quickly. You know, we were bootstrapped at the time, but we were like, you know what, it's worth it. It's worth more to us right now to have a lot of quick traction. That's part of like what got us into YC was like, we had a lot of traction early on. And like since then, I think we've scaled back. I think we're at 30%. Yes, yeah, so we've scaled it back to 30%. And then for agencies, we do like a 15-15 split. They can pass on 15% to their client, and then they get 15% themselves. And 30%, I think, feels you know really good to us and feels right you know, at, the, at the stage we're at. Yeah, yeah. I, like it's, if, you, if you try to undercut it, you're not going to bring on the really good partners at the end of the day. Um, partners is a unique thing. Like You're not actually selling. The, the big mistake that we see companies go through and do is, you're not actually like companies are most companies are really good at selling their product, right? But in a partner program, you're actually selling a partnership. And so, like, what is the upside for the partner in working alongside of you, right? Um, you can't just say, like, well, you have the luxury of doing that. Um, there should be like a monetary uh, upside, and there should also be, you know, a solid working relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and technology is really important to that. And, and up until now, um, you know, there just hasn't been enough tech to go through and support that. I mean, you wouldn't go through and onboard a member of your team and not bring them onto Slack or give them an email. Um, how can you possibly expect your partner to be successful if you're not going to support them the way that is required? Yeah. It seems like, too, with affiliates, like it's the 80 20 principle, but it's like 99, you know, one where like all of the revenues and all of the sales come just from a few affiliates that we've seen. Like we were talking about a guy named Erwin, who's, you know, been one of our biggest affiliates or our biggest affiliate, you know, for, a long time and we found out I think talking with you guys that like this guy's an affiliate for like a ton of companies and it's like a big time affiliate like this guy this is what he does and like really really good at it have you seen that across like all the accounts that it is this super long tail of people that have referred one person maybe two people and then there's a few at the top that do all the sales and is that kind of the model that people should be going after yeah so partnerships isn't even an 80 20 rule it's actually a 90 10 um, and so the mistake that people often make is they always go out and they say like, oh, we're going to recruit this like one, you know, super affiliate, or we're going to recruit this like massive agency, or we're going to get this partnership with this like financial institution. And that's going to cure all like, there's no silver bullet in partnerships. You have to create a framework and then dump the chips in and support the people that are engaged. Um, and, and, and that's why you need technology for it to happen because really never before have you been able to do that accordingly. So um, we see that right across programs. Um, interestingly, if you start creating a lot of content and that content hits home, um, you know, agency partners, the um, level of engagement can actually be quite high. Um, but on the agency partners, the trick there isn't, again, to sell your product or to sell the commission, but it's to be talking about their business. Uh, HubSpot and Shopify do a great job at this. I always point to them as like examples to go through and emulate. Like, mm. Just go and look at what they do as far as content goes. And then if you copy that type of framework, you should be able to provide a really great agency or build a really great uh, agency program. Interesting. What do investors think about the revenue stream that is like a partner revenue stream? Do they think it's better? Do they discount it and say, oh, that's not as good as you know some other type of revenue stream? What do they think? Yeah, so um, I mean... The way that investors think of it is, and I mean, the, the way that we pitch it is like sales was an art and then it was a science, right? Like Salesforce changed the game there. Like sales operations wasn't even a thing until Salesforce came along. It was always, you know, a VP came in, they had their playbook, they implemented the playbook. 
Same thing happened with marketing with like Google AdWords, as well as with, you know, marketing automation solutions like HubSpot, Marketo. And the last piece that's just recently happened is with customer success. You know, Zendesk, Intercom, they've gone through it and, and taken what was an art and turned it into a science. And so investors look at this and um, when we talk to them, we're like, how are you not having a conversation about where 30% of this revenue should happen? Like, when was the last time you ignored 30% of the revenue in a boardroom? And so the way that investors are looking at it now is they recognize that with the increasing number of solutions that are in the market, um, there's going to be like partnerships is an incredibly important piece of what's there. The challenge is investors don't know how to fix it. And so there's always some like poor soul that's pointed to that's doing a really good job in their, in their um, you know, area of expertise, whether it's in sales or marketing. And you know, somebody in the executive group says, like, taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, we're going to give you this really great opportunity. You get to run partnerships. And, but like, it's just you and you have no resources. So it's actually our responsibility. And I think we need to do a better job at it, to be honest, to educate that individual how to have that board-level conversation and how to push the conversation up to the rest of the executive's team. I think it is a challenging, it's a challenging concept even internally. And, you know, we've been you know, doing, we've run Proof for two years, we've kind of always had this partner program, and we've kind of ebbed and flowed on like how much we like effort we put into it. And myself, I've been skeptical of the amount of value that we get out of our partner program. You know, again, we're probably yeah. doing a ton of things wrong. You know, we'll kind of set up the big webinar, we'll do the webinar, we'll have everyone promote for it, and we'll create all these assets and you know, we get some meaningful revenue out of it, but for us, not nearly as much as we, for the effort as we would get from a Facebook ad or AdWords or something like right now. Uh, but I feel like there's so much education, like we just don't really know what we're doing, you know? It's like there's not a lot of information about how to really do this well. And I, I can see how once you can get a company to like realize that and recognize that and then train them up on that, that could become, yeah, a main channel for them when some of the other channels probably start to get less effective and less efficient. Yeah, you know, I always point to Shopify. So Shopify started investing in their, their channel program in like 2010, 2011. And um, I talked to the people that started running it there first off. And they said 12 months into their partner program, they had eight active channel partners, mm. right? Like that's nothing. Like anybody looking at that on paper is going to say like, can it? Like not worth it. Absolutely not worth it but they doubled down on it. And I mean, the first conference that Shopify ever ran was their partner conference. And, you know, in their perspectives, when they went public, partner and channel was the main driver of what's mm. there. Because, you know, Shopify's actually built not only Shopify and all of their e-commerce uh, uh, stores, but Shopify's built businesses that service those e-commerce stores. And so when you think more broadly about what the opportunity is, and the ROI that it provides, uh, partnerships and channel, it's something that you need to do. It's just not going to show you that immediate return like Facebook or you know, building out a sales team. But the reality is, long-term, it's going to be the better solution. It seems like there's more of a moat around that channel as well. I mean, there's a real relationship there. There's affinity. There's you know, brand relationship. And you know, Facebook ads obviously don't have any sort of attachment to me and my company. And they just want the dollar and we'll spit back whatever they can. But you build up this like community of partners and like that's going to keep going that's not going to switch to another company very easily it seems like that will have a lot more staying power yeah i mean like there are shopify partners that have shopify tattoos right there's probably more shopify partners that have shopify tattoos and there are shopify employees that have shopify tattoos totally and so like that's the type of like fanaticism you can kind of tap into if you make the right investment 
Because yeah, a lot of these people have built their entire business around that. And like they've they've built the life of their dreams because they're just reselling Shopify or HubSpot or whatever. It's like totally transformed their life when yeah, most people don't get that opportunity. Yeah, and I think that more software companies can do that if they serve up the content in the right way, right? Like it's about having a conversation. Um, it's not about like equipping them to go through and sell your platform. It's like it's just opening your employee base without having to carry the overhead of salaries. Mm. Um, but you still have to go give them like you know more support than you probably originally think. Okay, sweet. So you guys recently made a name change. Uh, as far as I am aware, you were GrowSumo when you switched to PartnerStack. What's the story behind that, and how has that gone? So at our last company, we were called at first Unite and eventually Pod. Um, it was Unite with a Y, and we went to go to office hours when YC came to Waterloo, and uh, we sat down with Sam Altman, and Sam's only feedback was, Unite is an awful name. Like Unite with a Y is is awful, and we spent like. I don't know, like four or five months trying to repurpose and find like which name made sense there. Um, and so the only rule for when we made the pivot over to um, GrowSumo was we were only going to spend five minutes on selecting a name. Um, and so we wrote a whole bunch of names up on the blackboard uh, or on the whiteboard rather. We went through it and looked um, at what the most affordable domain was and GrowSumo was $12. And so that is how we selected Grow sumo, and that's what we went through and worked on. Which I think is um, the right way to do it. I mean, do you regret that looking back, or do you think that was the way to go? That was absolutely the way to go. Like, there's so many things that matter in your business. The name at some point in time matters for your brand, but again, like, what matters at first is like finding product market fit, and that's so hard. Like, who cares what your name is if you don't have product market fit? Yeah. Um, so when when we when we hit product market fit or could see us approaching that product market fit. We went on this longer search to go through and find a domain. And anybody that's done any type of domain searches know that you know six-figure domains are pretty common practice these days. Um, so we found PartnerStack because we think you know PartnerStack is ultimately like partnerships are part of the technology stack instead of technology companies, and it just made sense. And like truth be told, like the domain was actually pretty affordable, so that certainly had a had a had an impact. And how has it been like rebranding? Has that been a big pain? Has that caused a lot of confusion? Just what is it like? Because I think, I think a lot of people were probably thinking, hey, it'd be nice for us to switch our name at some point, but it also seems like a huge headache. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, our team did a really good job at it. Um, the truth is, like, uh, like, we don't do much as far as marketing because our partner channel drives so much revenue for us. Uh, we just turn to our partners for that to happen. So we just equip them with the right assets, and then they just like, change everything. Um, it was actually easier than we thought. Um, we had a, you know how people have like a swear jar. We had a, like a, a gross sumo jar that <laughs> if you said gross sumo instead of partner stack, um, you had to go through and put some money in, 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 in the jar. That's um, amazing. So that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing is, you know, in pitches or in customer calls, jumping in and talking about gross sumo when it was really partner stack. And that's the only thing that caused confusion. But to be honest for us, it was a lot easier. Um, and so like, I'm really happy we did it. And it's been really well received from you know our, our new customers and our existing customers. It's a better name, so yeah, I, I like it. Do you guys think yeah. you'll change? Like right now, all your like app and everything is still on Gross, like app.grossumo. I think it is. Are you planning on like changing that, or are you just like eh, that doesn't really matter? We'll figure that out later. That's something that I think we're going to go through and try to tackle a bit in in 2020. Um, um, there there's some reasons why we can't necessarily do that right now, um, like from a from a tech standpoint. 
Um, but at the end of the day, like it doesn't really matter too much. Um, we don't get a lot of people going through it and even like, you're like one of maybe half dozen people that would ever go through it and notice it. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, at the end of the day, like we are like, our brand is what our brand is. Our marketing page is what our marketing page is in it. And it seems to go through and work. By the time you get like inside the app, you're probably, you you already get it. You're already sold. You're yeah. like, I don't really care at that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Okay, very cool. So I want to talk about your guys' growth. So you've been doing this for four years, but then at the beginning, you shared these like crazy numbers from the last year. It seems like something has clicked, or something has changed very recently that is just causing big growth. Like, what has that growth journey been like? Yeah, so it was so hard at the beginning. Like, it was so hard. I mean, I remember in YC, because we went in as effectively no product, we're talking about the total number of partners that are on our platform. And I remember one of the conversations was, wow, we have zero or we have 19 partners on our platform. And, um, you know, we sat down in, in office hours, we walked through, oh, you know, we only have 19 partners. And um, one of my co-founders, John, he stepped up and they said, like, what are you going to do for in, in two weeks from now? And John's like, we're going to get 500 partners on our network. My other co-founder said, like, why not 5,000? Uh, and then Kevin Hale said, yeah, why not 5,000? <laughs> we came to back two weeks later, we came back and, um, we had 79 partners on our platform and we were just like pumped. And I think I remember the look on Kevin's face was like, Oh man, you guys are not going to make it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes. like, I'm pretty sure like that was like the, the question in the room. And, but we felt like super excited about it. So, um, yeah, we, we actually had great growth right before demo day. Um, uh, not from a revenue standpoint, but from companies coming through and signing up. We launched on Product Hunt, and as an enterprise software company, we're voted like the third product uh, of the day, which we almost didn't launch on Product Hunt. So I highly suggest for early stage companies to do it, no matter how it goes. Um, and then we went back to really, you know, we sh we pitched on Demo Day, and our platform like really didn't work. Um, like it kind of felt like vaporware because it kind of was. Um, and I feel like everybody hits like some state of that. So that was 2015. Um, you know, like pretty much everybody that came through and signed up is now out the door and probably onto what, what they did next. So we spent 2016, like really being deliberate in building out product. Um, our biggest mistake was growing, like putting too much of an emphasis on growth before we had product market fit, right? Like we didn't need to launch on, um, product hunt when we went and launched on product hunt, we had some really great companies we were working with. And I think that Rainforest tells a very similar story from what I've gone through and heard. Um, I wish we just stuck to those um, uh, customers longer instead of giving in to pressure to grow at all costs. Um, I was talking to our team recently and, and have the exact same thought is that, you know, why I think YC, I mean, one of the best things they do is tell you grow 10% week over week, but then we kind of kept doing that. And all of a sudden we just hit this like, this wall, we're like, we're trying to grow faster, but our technology is just not ready. And like, people start churning out. And it was just like, we're spending all this time like fixing stuff and trying to scale and like couldn't go deep with those first people that we had on that like cared so much about it. And uh, I've got the, I, yeah, I have the exact same feedback that sometimes growth at all costs can, can just actually kind of kill you or at least slow you down quite a bit. Yeah, I think that like growth cures everything until it doesn't. Right, until, like, until it breaks everything. Until and then it breaks you gotta go everything. Back. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our our turning point was we went back and did heavy, heavy work. I we went to some of our investors and I'd meet with them every month, and they said like, okay, like what's the update? And for a while, like the update was like we're going to the dentist. 
right? Like no one wants to go to the dentist, but everyone has to. And like, that was the same update, I think for like three months in a row. Um, like we're going to the dentist, we're doing the hard things. We're making the hard decisions from a product standpoint to get to the point where we hit product market fit. So we came out in 2017 and that's when we like really started to commercialize the product. And it wasn't probably until that mid 2017, early, like late 2017 was when we found not only product market fit, but like sales market fit. We know who to go through and target, you know, what the buying process was like, the materials that they required to sell internally. Um, and that was really something that changed everything. Um, we've never done like really much of anything on marketing spend. We invested in our sales team and we invested in our partner channel. Uh, and that's driven everything. And then the referrals that we go through and grow and get from it have, have been incredibly valuable. So it's very much so, you know, product market fit and then like sales market fit. At some point in time, we have to work more on the marketing product fit, but our partner channel works so well for us right now that like, that's kind of what we, that's our bit. It's been our crutch. And do you feel like you have hit product market fit now? Yeah. Yeah. It feels, feels very real. And I think that the, I th- I think you hit product market when you hit product market fit. All of a sudden, you start having all these really good problems to have, um, and they feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. But like objectively, like they're really good problems to have. And so, um, I think that that's how I would describe if you know that you have product market fit. It's like, oh, this really great company wants to work with us, and we're going to have to build all this new stuff for them. But they're going to pay us, you know, ten times more than anybody else has ever paid us. Like. Huge problem to have, also amazing problem to have. Yeah, like we had something where like, oh, our analytics went down. Like it didn't work. It stopped working. What happened? Oh, we dove into it. It's because one of the companies that started using us like like 10x, um, um, you know, their their channel revenue like in a day. Uh, <laughs> and we're like, we're not expecting that whatsoever. And we're like, oh man, I, I guess this thing works. Like, I, yeah. you know, I, we'll go back and fix those analytics after the fact. So. Um, those are good problems to have. We had a moment like that recently when uh, our login like wasn't working because like our system was overloaded. Which obviously, you, know, you should have a, a good login process in your app. But we kind of went back and looked at it because we saw like traffic had this huge spike, and we're like, "Oh, Oprah started using it yesterday," and like ran this huge launch on it, and like you know had more traffic than the rest of our customers combined, or something like that. And, like that's a cool problem to have. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a hard perspective to keep in mind. Um, we always try to put like hard problems, like good problems to have in, in context. So it's like, Hey, last year, this time, you know, we closed like this type of revenue and like this year in this same period of time, we closed like five X what we did last year. Yeah. And like everyone might be feeling the heat from that, but like, this is a really good problem to have. Um, and we've been really good at being able to keep the employees around that have joined our team. Like we don't really have much of a, like, like the, the people that come and stay with us generally stay for very long periods of time. Um, and they're able to provide that context and, and we actually let them speak to the rest of the team as like, Hey, you know what? In 2016, when there's six people in this office, like this is what it looked like. And I've been a part of effectively four different companies still with the same values, but four different companies nonetheless. And, um, I I think that that's been pretty valuable too. What have been the mistakes that you've made along the way? There've been any, you know, one, two or three that have really stood out as, okay, that was somewhere that we messed up. Yeah. Geez. I mean. Like, I mean, first is like, we put too much of an emphasis on growth. Um, we lost like, I mean, we had at the time, they were, they're a bigger customer for us, base CRM. Like they were recently acquired by Zendesk. We had them on as a customer and 
their team said, we will walk you through exactly what needs to be built in order to support our channel program. And we learned over time, like base stuck with us for two months. They tried to make it work and it just didn't work out. And we learned over time that base ended up driving more than 50% of their revenue through channel partners. Mm. Um, and a huge mistake to ignore that in favor of growth, right? Like, like the result of that, like probably put us like six months behind real- realistically. Um, I mean, there was like fundraising mistakes that we so went through. Look, looking back on that, would you have just built what they wanted you to build and said, we're going to really put a ton of focus on this one customer here? Yeah, that's exactly what we would have done. And actually, Sam Altman gave us that advice. Um, find five customers, make them happy, and you'll build an enormous company. And I feel like we did that. We started to do that in 2016, and we started like 12 months too late. Um, and it's just because we gave into the pressure from VCs and everybody around us, like saying, like, grow at all costs. Um, there are some businesses that you should not grow at all costs whatsoever. And like, often it's like enterprise software. Um, like, you should be very deliberate in the way that you go to market. Um, you should go to market sooner, um, but you can sell to people and, and work those relationships and learn how to upgrade the accounts rather than just trying to like bring on new customers. Like, you know, dance with the person you went to the dance with. Don't just try to bring someone new. It's so good for me to hear. When we first launched, you know, Proof, like I said, we kind of just went really big, really fast. weren't really talking to our customers. Just like, get more, get more, get more, get more. We're now launching, you know, two years in a new product called Experiences. It allows companies to basically personalize, B2B SaaS companies to personalize their marketing funnel. And we're, this time we're flipping it. We're going really, really slow. We're working with two people right now for the last couple of months. And we're going to bring on you know, two more here this week and going really slow. And my hypothesis is like, okay, this is going to work way better. It's cool to hear you say that and kind of reaffirms that decision here early on because it feels so different than the way we, we launched initially. Yeah, that's like, I think it's just a hard lesson to go through and learn um, because growth feels good. Like the nice graph up into the right feels good. And it's an easy, easy measuring stick. But, um, you know, if I was to do it again, like, that would be the advice that I would provide myself five years ago is like, actually growth only matters when you're ready to grow. And before that, it could just kill you. And so ignore the noise and just like heads down and get to work. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that was definitely like one area that we went through and struggled with. Um, the other mistake that we made was um, we needed to invest in our sales and marketing stack earlier, like the tech stack that went through and in support of that. Like we were really unsophisticated with that. We tried to go for the cheapest CRM. We tried to go for like the cheapest solution all the time. And what we learned was we would go through it and make the purchase on it, and we would never get it implemented. And it would always work like sort of, not all the way. And we started to realize the breakdown when we started to bring more people onto the team, when it wasn't just founders, when we're bringing on AEs, SDRs, marketers. Like you need to invest in your marketing and sales stack more than anything. So we eventually brought on a sales operations person before hiring a sales manager. Mm. And it was easily the best decision that we've made in our company. Totally changed our trajectory. And what did um, that person do? Just figure out all the flow, all the integration. How does this kind of whole process work from a tech level? Yeah. So we actually at first tried to do it through a consultant and like don't work with Salesforce consultants um, was like ultimately the, the takeaway that we went through and had. Um, so he, he figured out, you know, what was going to, and, and still we have somebody dedicated to this that goes through and revisits everything about once every six months, um, makes tweaks, but then like truly like redoes the entire sales flow and sales funnel and how stuff's passed off. Um, 
So the first thing that Sean came through and did was he cut, I think, like six platforms that we were going through and using. I won't mention their names, but they were cheap platforms. And he said, like, listen, if we're going to be serious here, if we're going to build a company that can at some point in time do $100 million ARR, the sooner that we transition over to something like Salesforce, like a professional, like, like as soon as we can go through and do that, the better. And is it, um, and is it truly something like Salesforce or is it actually Salesforce? That yeah, it's Salesforce. Just, um, the sooner we can get onto Salesforce, the sooner we'll be yeah. there. Yeah, and, and, and the reason being is um, like there's so many reps that are trained on just how to use Salesforce. I know that there are other people that play in the market and it can go through and work, but I wish we'd done that earlier. Um, I, I really, really do. Um, and I'm really happy that we did. I also wish that, you know, we were just like, if we, if we wanted to dedicate time towards something, like whether it's like building a product or like launching a marketing channel or, you know, scaling at the sales team a certain way, I wish we would have just invested all of, like, I wish we would have gone all in on it. Right. Like you, you don't know if something's going to work unless you truly go all in on it. And it's not enough to just hire someone to go in and do it, right? Like you have to actually give them all the resources required for them to do their job. And we see that all the time in partnerships, right? Like people like dip their toe in the water and they like, they realize like, oh, my whole body's not warm. It's like, yeah, well, it's, you're, you just dipped your toe in the water. Like you have to go all in on this. If you think that this is something that's going to work, it probably will. It's just a matter of when. And so I would have made fewer investments, but gone more all in with those investments. You feel like going all in a lot of times looks like you as the CEO being really interested and really involved in something instead of it just being kind of handed off you know, to somebody else your team, but you're not really thinking about it or like keeping up to date on it. Yeah, 100%. Um, absolutely. Like if I'm going to go all in on it, like it has to be a priority of mine. I have to be like, at least at the very least involved in the project, um, probably for at least 30 days and then do the handoff and then mm -hmm. hold people accountable to that for at least a quarter um, and then have them go through and change whatever the reporting structure is. Um, you know, that kind of leads into the next thing is like, I had way too many opinions as a CEO. And I think that you, after you hit about 15 to 20 people, those opinions that you have, like they actually hurt your business. Like if I say something now and I think that, you know, Oh, like, for example, like this button should be bigger. Like we, like, I think that that's something that we really need to go through and do. Well, that, that that's the thing that's going to go through and get worked on. And the reality is, is like at our stage we're 30 people, I know what's happening in the business, but the day-to-day, -day, some of the day-to-day -day specifics, like I don't know. And so I try to actually not share my opinion as much and try to force my team to share that opinion. So that was a huge lesson. And that's a lesson that I see a lot of our managers having as well now as they go through and build their teams is like, have fewer opinions. And when you have those opinions, um, like communicate to the team, is this something that you strongly believe in? Or is this just an idea? Um, and, and, and differentiate that. It's something I heard recently from Wade Foster, CEO at Zapier. He was uh, on season one of Scale or Die, but he had tweeted out um, something that I think he heard from Darmesh from HubSpot, where at the end of his communication, he'll put like a hashtag and he's like, there's like different levels of like what he means or what he's trying to say. And he has like a hashtag FYI or hashtag recommendation or hashtag like strong recommendation because he was saying things. Sometimes he didn't like really care that much about it. Like, hey, that button should be bigger, FYI. And FYI for him means 
like, this is a suggestion. I don't really care if you do it or not. Um, I'm not going to follow up on this, and you have total freedom to do what you want. But then it kind of got ascended more and more, and he said that was one of the best things he did as CEO and growing because he was having a hard time saying things because everything got taken so seriously. And I'm with you. I've had to kind of start to like preface things when I say it, like, hey, like I really don't care if you do this or not. Like I trust you. Here's what I would do you know, if I were you. But yeah, I think that's a huge part of CEOs learning how do you kind of communicate and like yeah, share less opinions as you grow. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough thing to go through and do. And then also managers at some point in time, right? When you're a manager managing managers, which we're kind of getting into the phase of, like you know, it's it's important and it's a hard thing to do. Um, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a very, very, very hard thing to do. Yeah. All right. So, Brent, we got to wrap up here with what I call the salty six, which is six okay. very salty, rapid-fire questions just for us to get to know you a little bit better. Some personal, okay. some business. I promise this is the saltiest set of questions you ever had. You ready yeah. for it? I'm ready for it. All right, man. Number one, outside of building partner channels, what do you do for fun? I like biking. I like cycling. Um, I got a bike last year and, um, I mean, it's just been awesome. I actually have it in the office. And so like Canada gets a lot of snow. Um, and so, you know, I know that I'm going to go through it and cycle after work at least three times a week. How many months a year can you cycle in Toronto? Probably six, probably more than you think. It probably depends on like how tough you are. Um, I'm a little bit softer. And so like, you know, when it's not like sweltering hot outside, um, you know, like I, 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 I find myself in the office. Okay, number two. Do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, like my guilty thing is I check my email as soon as I wake up. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I go then make my coffee um, and then just go for a walk into the office. Typically, I'll grab like breakfast on the way in. Uh, and then I need like five minutes when I get here just to kind of like reorient myself. So, um but I'm very guilty at checking my email, and I, I feel like that's not something you want to do in the way you want to start your day off. Yeah, that little dopamine hit. It feels good, yeah. man. It gets you going. Yeah, I know. It's addictive. <laughs> okay, number three. How do you focus during the day when you got like something you really got to get done? I go for a walk, um, even in the snow here in Toronto. Um, like I make sure if I have something that I need to sit down and get done, um, I make sure that I can go for like a five, 10-minute walk beforehand, and then I'll just quarter myself off. Right. Um, if I, there's something that really needs to get done, like I'll leave my status on Slack that says like, don't bother me. And if people walk up and tap me on the shoulder, I just like totally ignore it. Um, I, that's something that I've had to learn to go through and do. Um, and it's something that, you know, some of the other people on our team have gone through and done, but I think a little bit of physical activity before like sitting down and going like hard and heavy on something is really important. And I also think the same thing to after like, physical activity is, is, is super, super important. All right, number four, what's a book that has impacted you deeply in the last few years? Ooh, uh, what's a book that has impacted me deeply? I mean, like I, I love like Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think it's a really well-told story as much as anything. Um, you know, Andy Grove's book, like absolutely incredible. Like, and all of our managers have to go through and read it. Can be dry at times. Um, so like so impactful, um, but Ben does a really good job at telling the story. Is that high output management? I output management. Yeah. Like I haven't, I, I haven't read it yet. It. Yeah. It's, it's, we actually start like our managers do like a, like a, like a book club um, where they'll go through and read a chapter at a time because I didn't like quite frankly, trust everyone to go through and just read the book on their own. Like, you know, if it mattered and if it's a book that we go through and give, like we'll do like a book club around it. What's the best purchase you've made recently under 150 bucks. 
Ooh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I bet this like really awesome bike pump, <laughs> um, as, as, as weird as it sounds. Um, yeah, it was, I, I think it was like $80. Um, so it was more than I even planned on going through and spending, but the whole office uses it now. Um, there's a lot of cyclists here in the office. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's been, that's been great. Love it. Okay. Number six, what's a trait or a characteristic that you have that has led to the success that you have today? Probably my capacity to like, like be perseverant. Um, you know, I think that like, that is what matters most in this. There's an element of getting lucky. Um, but at the end of the day, you just have to kind of withstand really hard things um, and not lose focus. So, but perseverant first, because if I'm focused and not perseverant, like I'll never get to the end of what I need to go through and, and, and work on. But like I can persevere pretty much through everything and anything. And that's what I've kind of learned. It's really hard to build a business. It's a lot harder to build a business and have a successful personal life. Um, and, um, you know, like it's like, I, I think that everybody kind of knows that it's just not something that's talked about too often. Yeah. I remember that at YC, I think it was Michael Seibel talking and he said, like, the only way your business dies is if you stop working on it. And like by definition, if you wake up and you start working on it that day, your business is still alive. And so can you just hunker down and persevere through the long winter, through the dips and, and actually keep working on it until you get a chance, until you hit that lucky spot? You know, cause I do agree. I think there is some luck too. I do think there is some, some things that you hit that you couldn't have predicted, but can you stay around long enough to actually reap some of those rewards? Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. Well, Bryn, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really great conversation. Good to finally meet the man behind one of our new favorite software tools as well here. <laughs> Love to meet our customers, and it's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. If people want to find out more about you, do you tweet? Do you do stuff on Medium? Where can they look you up? Just email me. Brynapartnerstack.com. I got rid of my social media so I can focus on the business. Um, took Twitter off my phone. Just email me. Um, feel free to reach out. Anybody, anytime. Um, if I can't help you, I can put you in touch with someone that can. Um, and so just, just reach out. And if you want to check out, you know, our company partnerstack.com is the best place to go through and find it. Sweet. Thanks so much for being on Bryn. Awesome. And thanks so much for watching guys. We'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.